0: I'm Marianne Kolbasek-McGee, Managing Editor of Healthcare InfoSecurity. Last week, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services released its long-awaited HIPAA Omnibus Final Rule. Today, I'm speaking with Susan McAndrew, Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Health and Human Services. Susan joined HHS in the year 2000 to work on the development of the first iteration of the HIPAA Privacy Rule. Since then, Susan has seen HIPAA through all its many stages of development, including the new Omnibus Final Rule. Susan will discuss the major provisions of the new regulations. Hi, Susan. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Briefly give us a framework of the major provisions in the HIPAA Omnibus Rule. What are the major components?
1: The omnibus rule actually combines uh, a number of rulemakings, and most of them based on uh, statutory authority that we had gotten uh, in the past couple of years. But there's there's really a lot in the omnibus final rule that's going to be good for consumers of health care, and in the way that it strengthens the protections that are available for their uh, private medical information. And it's really going to help the consumer in many ways to better control how their information is used and to become more active in controlling and being involved in their own care. So um, the rules do this in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, importantly, It now uh, gives uh, individuals the right to get their information from their electronic medical records in electronic form, and I think this is going to pave the way for the growth of individuals having access to their information electronically so that they can go on their home computer at any time in the day and call up uh, their medical records. And get them in real time, and I think this is going to be uh, really something that the consumer is going to be really thrilled about. Uh, it also gives individuals the right to tell their healthcare providers not to send information, certain information, to their health insurance companies uh, when it is when they have already paid for that those services in cash with the provider. So this gives them additional. control to keep some of their treatment information confidential and that gets shared uh, with their insurance companies only when the insurance company is actually going to be asked to pay for that service a major change is that we now are going to be able to extend the protections to the information uh, not just when it is in the hands of the covered entity but whenever that covered entity uh, hires another company to do some part of the work for them, we call these entities business associates. And so uh, the information will now be protected in the hands of the business associate in the same way it is with the covered entity. And that would flow, continue to flow if that business associate also contracts out part of those services. So it, it establishes this chain of protections for the information, and those protections aren't lost simply because uh, the covered entity has hired someone to do part of the work. There's a pro- new prohibition on the sale of protected health information. So now individuals have the choice. They get to authorize the covered entity to sell the information, and if they don't want their information sold, they just don't authorize it, and then the covered entity can't do it. Also, there are stricter limits now on when the covered entity can use the individual's information to market the goods and services of a third party. And so whenever they are being paid by that third party to send those kinds of communications, the covered entity can only do so if they get the authorization from the individual to say that they want to receive those kinds of materials. And finally, the rules make it easier for individuals to put a stop to getting fundraising communications from a healthcare provider. And when they say they don't want this information anymore, then the covered entity really is obliged to cease sending these kinds of communications to the individual. We also, through this legislation and these new regulations, have expanded capacity to enforce these rules and to make these new rights for individuals very real for them. So we're really looking forward uh, to the uh, opportunities that will be presented to consumers when this new rule goes into effect.
0: The final version of the HIPAA Breach Notification Rule removes the harm standard that was included in the interim final rule and replaces it with a more specific guidance about when to report a breach. Could you please compare and contrast what the original rule said about making a decision to report a breach versus what the final version says? And please explain why the change was needed.
1: Well, the original rule used as a threshold for when, a, when the individual needed to be notified that a breach had occurred, and, and what a breach is, is when the covered entity or its business associate has lost control of the PHI, and so there's been a disclosure of it in some manner that's not permitted uh, by the rule. What we originally asked the covered entity to consider when the breach occurred was whether or not there was a significant risk of harm, and that could be reputational, financial, or any other kind of harm to the individual. And if there was, uh, if the breach, the loss of this information uh, created such a risk for the individual, uh, then the individual needed to be notified. There was a lot of comment that we received that it was difficult for covered entities really to assess uh, individual by individual what, what kind of risk was being posed, that some individuals may be more vulnerable than others, and particularly in things like reputational harm. It was very difficult to for them to know and it was considered to be too subjective. So in the final rule, we have replaced it, This uh, what has become known as this harm standard, with a more objective way to measure when breach creates a situation of a significant risk such that notification to the individual is warranted. And so what we ask uh, the entity to consider is, is it likely that the breach is, will result in the information itself, the data that was lost, being compromised in some way? And then we've spelled out some particular factors which go to the nature and extent of the protective health information that was involved in the loss, in particular focusing on what types of identifiers were in that data, and therefore uh, how likely it is that someone who obtained the data in an impermissible way could re-identify that information and use it for some bad purpose. We also asked them to consider who was the unauthorized person who obtained this data through the breach. Uh, Sometimes that is known. Sometimes For instance, in a hacking situation, uh, you don't know exactly who the hacker was, but you can presume some malicious intent just from the hacking itself. Other times it may be more uh, benign and that the information may just have been misdirected to a wrong individual, and uh, that may not pose the same kind of risk that, say, a theft or a hacking situation would. We do ask them to consider whether or not it's likely that the information has actually been acquired or viewed, again, in some intrusion situations, or even if sometimes oh, when there's been a theft of a, of a laptop and you do recover that laptop, you can do a forensic analysis to determine whether or not, as a result of that incident, whether any information was actually accessed. Then finally, we asked them to consider the extent to which there's been some mitigation of the risk that the original breach caused. And again, that can be something like recovery of the the laptop. So some limitation on how long, say, a, a website portal may have been insecure. And so if there's been some mitigation in place, that may also lower the risk. But in the end, once they consider all these factors, and and this is not an exclusive list, so there may be other factors that the situation itself would make sense to consider, that in in the end, after all of this is looked at, the, the entity has to notify, unless they can say, through an analysis of these factors, that there's only a low probability of that the protected health information that was lost will be compromised as a result of that loss.
0: What is your feeling in terms of whether there will be more or fewer breaches being reported under the new rule? I
1: think there may be marginally more breaches reported. I do think, by and large, from the breaches that we have been seeing, uh, reported, there are incidents, there, there are occasionally uh, incidents that we would not, we did not think, uh, even under the old standard, would have posed a risk worthy of notifying individuals. Uh, and we're hoping that through these objectives, more objective standards and assessment practice, uh, that entities uh, will be able, on a more uniform basis, to come to a determination about whether or not notification is necessary. So it's not so much whether we're expecting more or fewer reports, so much as trying to achieve more uniformity in what gets reported.
0: Earlier you mentioned the impact on business associates. Could you please explain how the omnibus rule impacts business associates and and subcontractors? And how is the definition of business associates broadened? How are their responsibilities changed under HIPAA?
1: Under the omnibus and as a result, statutory changes in the health information technology for economic and clinical health, better known as HITECH Act, business associates for the first time will have some absolute obligations for how they can use and disclose uh, the protective health information that they have on behalf of the covered entity, and if that information is electronic, the standards by which they must secure the information. The change that was made really is in raising the bar for business associates in complying with what are essentially contractual requirements that they have today. So it's not so much that those uh, actual obligations have changed. It's just that under the High Tech Act, business associates can now be called to account for any misuse or failure to safeguard this information. And so what um, they're going to be required to do currently, business associates, covered entities that want to engage a business associate are required to have in place a business associate agreement that covers the obligations of the business associate with respect to the protected health information that they will get in the course of this work and it also basically requires the business associate to assure the covered entity that in its that the protected health information in its possession in the business associate's hands will be adequately safeguarded. So what has changed is that when these contractual arrangements are entered into, uh, they now need to pay particular attention to the spelling out for the business associate of what exactly are the uses and disclosures of this protected health information that they will have. And the covered entity should be limiting the permissions uh, to keep the uses and disclosures of that information within scope of what the business associate is doing for the covered entity. For instance, if they are hiring someone to manage their billing function, they can define in the contract what information the covered entity will get in order to manage the bills and what what they can do with that information in order to execute the bill and the payment structure. Uh, and, and much of that means that that business associate has no need for much clinical data and certainly not total access to the medical record, which is going on on the clinical side of the house. So it, they wouldn't normally get the full Panoply of uses and disclosures that the covered entity gets, it would be something structured to just that piece of business that the business associate is doing. And then, if the business associate does something outside the scope of that contract and something that would violate the privacy rule, uh, then the business associate stands liable for OCR, can now come in and investigate a complaint, or if we get a breach notification of something that happened at the business associate, we can directly investigate the business associate. And if they have violated uh, the rule, and in this case it might be a use that's outside the contract, then the business associate could face penalties uh, the same way the covered entity does. And more importantly, with regard to their general assurance of safeguard, if the information is in electronic form, which it will increasingly be, then the adequacy of the safeguards for that information will be measured at the business associate by the HIPAA security rule, which is the same set of standards that we measure safeguards at the covered entity itself. So it assures that those same standards they're spelled out in the security rule are in place at the business associate. And this holds true if the business associate then in turn contracts with others for some part of the business. And so not only the limitation on uses and disclosures and the need to comply with the security rule flow downstream to those subcontractors, but the liability for any uh, failures or violations of the contracts uh, also then puts the subcontractors in that same kind of jeopardy. So they have an additional incentive to abide by the requirements in the same way the covered entity has to protect and keep confidential this information.
0: Susan, could you please tell us when the new rule takes effect and when those affected by the new rule must comply? And does that mean that OCR won't enforce the rule until the compliance date?
1: Well, the new rule actually will be published January 25th. It becomes effective 60 days later, so that, so on March 26th is the effective date for these requirements. We do allow covered entities time, a reasonable amount of time, to uh, ensure that their policies and procedures are changed to reflect the new rule and they have their training in place with their employees. And so we give them six months to work through those compliance issues. And that would mean that we would really, for the first time, be measuring compliance around September uh, 23, 2013. That's not to say that entities can't begin to implement these requirements any time after the effective date, and some of them uh, we do expect covered entities to start doing right away, but uh, we do allow them a grace period in order to make sure that when we make these kind of changes that they can be implemented in the right way. So officially, to the extent it's a new requirement, we will not begin enforcing or issuing penalties for any failure to comply until after the the compliance date has passed. But that doesn't mean that we won't be continuing to do enforcement actions uh, as we have in the past. There's plenty of privacy requirements that are in place and that have not changed, and we will continue to ensure that those requirements, including the current – if there's a current provision – For instance, our current marketing requirements, we will continue to enforce those, and it's just the new portion of that, the new marketing rules, that uh, we would probably not enforce until after the compliance date is passed.
0: So if a breach were to occur right now, that breach would be investigated under the current or the interim rule as opposed to the new rule. Is that correct?
1: It really would depend on what the covered entity had in place at the time of the breach. as I said, if if they went ahead uh, and implemented the change to the from the harm standard to the new standard, then we would investigate that breach under whatever standard they use. Uh, but it does uh, it would allow them if they were still using the standard in the interim final rule, we would not say that they were out of compliance simply because they were not using uh, the more objective standard. In general, though, I think it's more important that the underlying causes of a breach, the actual uh, loss of the information or the impermissible disclosure that that uh, caused the breach, those standards are not really affected by what we're doing in the omnibus rule, so we would be fully able to look at the whys and hows at the covered entity or the business associate where the loss occurred, take action based on the loss itself.
0: What's your advice on the key steps that covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors should be taking now to prepare for the compliance?
1: I think they need to be reviewing their current contracts. They will have some additional time. We are actually giving them until September of 2014 to do whatever contractual uh, revisions are necessary. But uh, they really should start now, and many have actually started long uh, before the, the omnibus rule was made public, to look at their contracting relationships, make sure that the the contracts are clear enough about what the business associate can and cannot do with the information. Business associate needs to be looking at their how they are safeguarding, what their assurances of safeguards were based on, and measuring those against the security rule requirements. And if they need to be upgraded, to begin working on how to get um, those better protections in place. And just making sure that everyone understands what the new obligations are about. I think, in particular, the requirements are now going to be much more formalized between the business associate and its subcontractors. And the subcontractors, for the first time, may be facing more accountability for how they are using and disclosing information, so they really need to be aware We had always required the limitations to be passed on down from a business associate to its subcontractors, but we recognized that this may be much more new territory for those subcontractors than it should be for the business associate itself. And so they now need to be totally aware of how they are getting protected health information, what it is they can do with it and cannot do with it, and if it's electronic, how it is that they are going to implement the, the requirements of the security rule.
0: Lastly, Susan, can you provide any insight into why it took so long for this final rule to be released? You
1: know, I think the important thing is that the rule is, is about to be published in final form, and I think we really need to keep our eyes on the prize, and um, making this, keeping, moving forward uh, with the implementation of this rule so that the, these new rights are, become a reality for the consumer. And we're really excited that we are about to begin that part of the journey.
0: Thanks, Susan. I've been speaking with Susan McAndrew of the Office for Civil Rights. I'm Marianne kolbasek mcgee for Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.